Well, we're wrapping up a series today called Anticipate Resurrection. And we're actually on the other side of resurrection. So we thought we'd spend a day talking about what it means to live on this side of the resurrection. And before I talk about that, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever been in um, a situation where you, in the moment, you realize, wow, I never expected to be in this circumstance, whether it be good or bad, exciting or scary. Or We all have these crazy moments in life, the peaks and the valleys and the big times where in that moment, we're like, how did we get here to this very place? And then we reflect and we look back and we realize, okay, this is just my normal life. My normal life somehow got me right here. And I know there was some wise decisions that led me here. And, and we, we look at the way that we come to any situation and it's a bit mysterious. And, and we're surprised to find ourselves in certain situations. That's how I feel right now, actually. <laughs> because, let me explain... So, um, normally when I preach, I, I get to preach on what I want, which is usually worship or something, you know, all different things, songs or the Psalms. And, um, but oftentimes I'll fit in where we are in the series whenever I do preach. And that today's one of those days. And, and we decided that we would uh, preach a sermon on the second coming of Christ on this side of the resurrection. And I would have never picked this as a topic, and it's a bit intimidating. And yet, as I've read almost every occurrence in the New Testament about Jesus' future second return, I've been really encouraged and uh, a little bit terrified at the same time, thinking about the reality of it. But I've been really encouraged by this faith that we have in Jesus and how protective it is. So get ready for a simple theologian's view of the second coming, the return of Christ. And it's going to be good. I'm I'm looking forward to just letting the word guide us. In fact, I want to set these two things out in front before we talk about it. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones is a theologian, and he said this about this topic. He said, let us approach it as we are exhorted to by the scriptures. It is something that should rejoice our hearts, should comfort us, and stimulate us to holy living. And it's it's really important in the Bible. If you look at the occurrences of how much we hear about the future return of Christ, for every one reference to Jesus' first coming, his birth in Bethlehem, there's eight occurrences of uh, speaking about his second and final return. So, eight times as much information we have in the Bible about his actual second coming than his first arrival coming. And that just shows us that it's important. And so I want to encourage you as we look at this, we're going to try to look at what Jesus said as the prophet and him prophesying about his future return. And I want us to really keep in front of us that these are Jesus' words to his disciples. So you can turn to Matthew chapter 24. We're going to read a lot to kind of set the background, and then we're going to hone in on this one idea at the end that I think is really important. 
Matthew chapter 24 and 25 is this elaborate, extensive teaching that Jesus gave directly to his disciples. But unlike when the crowd was around them, in in this case, they were on the Mount of Olives uh, alone. And this, this same conversation is recorded in Mark and Luke, and certain parts of it are word for word. But Jesus sat alone with his disciples before he went to the cross, and he had this conversation. So we're in Matthew chapter 24. We're going to pick up in verse 3. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? The disciples asked Jesus this essential question, when, when's it all going to go down? When are these things going to happen? What will be the sign of your coming in the future? And what will be the sign of the end of the age? Even after Jesus' resurrection, Acts chapter 1, it says that the disciples were there with Jesus. And, and even then they asked him, Lord, is it, is it at this time that you're going to restore your kingdom to Israel? And then he, directly after that, he ascends into heaven. And, and the angel says, why are you looking around? This Lord who has left you will return in the same way. But here, before Jesus' death, the disciples have this question for Jesus. And, and he gives this long, beautiful, striking answer. But I want to focus in on this first sentence in verse 4 that he says right away. He answers them, See that no one leads you astray. Jesus said this to the disciples who would become the leaders of the church, who he had invested all this time in and leadership in. And he tells the disciples who are the closest with Christ, he tells them not to be led astray. He says, don't be misled. In other words, as you disciples, as you follow leadership in the world, don't follow leaders that are going to mislead you. The word astray that he says there is, it, it comes from a Greek word called planeo. And planeo is where we get the word planet. So to be led astray is to be led off the course, a wandering course, like a planet wanders on this course. And Jesus is saying, don't be like the planets that wander aimlessly in circles. And I just think it's funny that they ask him, well, Jesus, when are you coming back? What will be the sign of your coming? And what, what's going to be the, the end? When will the end come? And he says, don't be led astray. I'll read in verse 5 all the way through 14. And, and you, can feel, you can feel Jesus describing the many that will come to deceive and the many that will fall away. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth plains. Then then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated 
by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Jesus almost gives like a mini answer to their question as far as when the end will come. But he spends a lot of time talking about how many people will fall away and how many people will claim to be Christ and false prophets in his name. And he says this to the disciples, and, it, and it's, it's going to be true for us also that there will be many things in the world that attempt to lead us astray. But I love verse 13. The one who endures to the end will be saved. That's what I want to know about. How do you endure to the end? That's what I want from what Jesus is describing. And this gospel of the kingdom will go to the very end of the earth and be preached everywhere to every tribe and nation and then the end will come. This whole conversation about Jesus coming is, is interesting. There's this, I, th- I feel like there's a spectrum of interest on it within the life of the church that is not always the most helpful. I feel like there's a spectrum where on the one extreme is this thought, well, I know Jesus is coming back, um, but as far as the details and how that's all going to go down, I leave that to the theologians. And then the other far side of the spectrum is, this is my hobby. I know all the Old Testament passages, and I know how it all fits together, and I love studying this. And somewhere in, in the middle, we all know it's important, right? And yet Jesus is giving this reminder to us. And he gives this call even to his disciples to endure to the end. Let me keep reading in verse 15 to keep setting the background. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be a great tribulation, such as not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead many astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. Jesus continues to harp on this idea. 
And he's saying, you, you want to know the sign of my coming? Many will come with signs and wonders. But that is not my coming. And he gets into it again, verse 26. And just picture yourself sitting with Jesus on this hill with the disciples. And, and listen to him speaking to you. So if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. He says it again. If they say, hey, I'm over there, don't believe it. For my coming will be like this in in verse 27. It's described. There are several Greek words for Jesus' second coming and, and the description of that. And they're words that you'll recognize, I think, for the most part. There's several words, but three of the more prominent are um, the word epiphany. The word epiphany means appearing. It's a Greek word, and it's something that we still use about God's appearing and Jesus appearing. Uh, another word that's even more mysterious is apocalypsis, where we get the word apocalypse. The word apocalypse means revelation or to reveal something that's been hidden to, to let the veil be torn or to be pulled away so that you can see what's behind. So Revelation 1.1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, the apocalypse of Jesus Christ, the revealing of Jesus Christ. But here in verse 27, the word, which is really one of the most common words for Jesus coming, is the word parousia. And it's where we get the word advent. And it means that Jesus will arrive with this royal, kingly arrival in the flesh, in, phys- in the physical. So when it says, as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming, the parousia of the Son of Man. He describes it in more detail in verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall away from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. So the sign that we've been waiting for. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heaven to the other. Jesus' coming is described with power and glory. The word power there is uh, where we get the word dynamite. And the word glory is where we get the word doxology. And Jesus' coming will be physically Brilliant, such that no one would miss it. So if you, if you hear that Jesus came over there, don't believe it. That's what he's saying. In verse 36 is where I want us to hone in the rest of our time. Jesus uh, picks a pretty interesting way to describe his second coming. In verse 36. 
But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day our Lord is coming. I think Jesus wanted to get his point across that we will not know the day or the hour of his future return. And, and this passage is echoed by many of the writers of the New Testament, almost all of them, actually. And then Jesus turns to this interesting thing in verse 43. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming... He would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Jesus equates his coming to that like a thief in the night. And this is crazy because the thief in the Bible is is always the devil. He comes to seek and destroy and steal and kill. And yet Jesus' coming is equated like a thief comes at night. So obviously we know Jesus isn't talking about his character here, but he's talking about the way that he will come. And I've been thinking a lot about this. I was In high school, I was a security guard for a brief time, and then I found that it wasn't my calling. I know. I know it's shocking to you that I was a security guard. It was shocking to me at the time. I worked at the Mary Campbell Center in North Wilmington, which is a home uh, for people with disabilities. And actually, I really enjoyed the job because half the time I spent talking to the residents, and they were great, great folk, and some of them went to my church at the time. And I would sit there and do my homework at the desk, and I would buzz people in as they signed in. And I would wear this red Mary Campbell shirt and khaki pants, which is totally unlike me, but I did it anyway. And, um, and, and so I would do, not like the night shift, but the 7 to 11, on a weeknight, no less. You know, so I would, uh, but toward the end of the night, I actually had to walk around the Mary Campbell Center. And it's in, it's in a, a, na- a neighborhood in North Wilmington, so I would be walking around with a flashlight, and I remember a few times I actually got a little spooked out. Like, I thought, man, you know how sometimes you just, like, get a little scared in those moments? And um, I had this thought, well, if a thief did come, what would I do? This was pre-cell phone days. This was, uh, you know, a time where you just had to rely on your own strength, I guess. And, but a thief never came, and, and I finished my homework and went about my business. Um, I was driving home with a friend the other day, and he got a call from his alarm company for his house. And they said, oh, yeah, your, your back door, the alarm's going off, and you want us to send the police? And he was like, no, 
That back door, it always sets the alarm off. It's like the thing that always happens. Don't send the police. I don't want to be paying for that. And then, uh, so he got off the phone and we're driving. And then he remembered his wife might be coming home early. So he called her. She didn't answer. And then, then I noticed he started driving a little quicker. So he called her again. She still didn't answer. Started driving a little quicker. Oh, it's probably just the back door. So he finally got a hold of her and everything was fine. But the thought of a thief and potentially his wife being there was kind of perked the moment there a little bit. Um, I'm sure you all have had this case where you're laying in bed at night, about to go to sleep, and you remember, or you, we don't remember actually, you, you think about it and you, you wonder, is, did I lock the front door? Because I think I did. I'm like, if, and you percentage-wise that you're like, I think I'm 90%. And then you start to think about that 10% chance that you didn't lock it. And, and as you get older and you have wife and little kids in the, in the house, you go down and you lock the door and you're like, ha, ah, I did lock it. Or I didn't lock it. Man, I'm glad I came down. Um, and then for a few of us, this, is, this has happened, right? A thief has come into our house at night. There's nothing more shocking and invasive and scary and potentially dangerous so the Lord coming back as a thief is a really interesting picture. In fact, I want us to turn to 1 Thessalonians. Because both Paul and Peter, they, they hone in on this and they get at the root of what it means. 1 Thessalonians, if you are using one of the Bibles in our seats, it's on page 847. We're going to be looking at chapter 5. And, and as we read this and this next passage, I, I go back to that, that phrase that Jesus told his disciples, those that endure to the end will be saved. And what I want to know is, if Jesus' second coming is like a thief in the night, even to the angels, then it's going to be like that to us. So I want to know, what does it mean to be ready? And if you think about a thief, those examples I gave, even if you know a thief is eventually going to come, how do you prepare? I mean, think about that. A thief will come into your life at some point. How do you prepare? It sounds impossible, but it's not actually. The way to be prepared is to be ready every single night. That's the only way, because it's unexpected. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 1. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. Because Paul is referring back to what Jesus already told us. We don't know the day or the hour. Verse 2, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. I love this. We are not of the night or of the darkness. 
So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. Paul is making a spiritual distinction here. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. You belong to the day if you are in Christ and Christ is in you. And, and we should be careful not to make a distinction that, okay, we're good if we're in Christ and Christ is in us, we're good, we're safe, and everyone else, well, they can fend for themselves. That's not the purpose. This is a call toward humility and to be ready for the believer. And it's, an, it's a way for us to know how to be ready. It's not just so that we know, okay, well, I guess the rest of the world's going to destruction. No, the purpose is so that we know how to be ready when the thief comes. And this is good news. This is encouraging news for the whole world. And it says, how do you, how do you belong to the day? You put on the breastplate of faith and love. Earlier, Jesus said that lawlessness would increase and love would fade away. And I love the King James Version because it says that love shall wax away at the end. And, and this love that we have for God, that as that uh, flame for him is extinguished, the wax around our souls grows cold and waxes away and love dissipates. And yet here we're called to put on that same love as a breastplate of faithfulness and put on the helmet of salvation. Lastly, turn over to Second Peter chapter 3. And if you have one of our Bibles, it's page 876. Peter says much the same message, but he, he gives us a call. And he's talking about, earlier he's talking about um, how people will come and say, well, where's the promise? It's been so many years. Like, really? You still believe after all these years? And then he says, well, did they forget that the Lord created the earth and, and that the earth was destroyed by a flood? But then in verse 8, he says this. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, 
waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. We could have very easily thought that Peter might say, well, just be, be glad that you have Christ. But he doesn't. He says, what kind of people ought you to be in lives of godliness and holiness, knowing what you know? And, and he says, yeah, people will talk about that Jesus is slow in his return, but it's actually his patience that makes him appear slow. And I, I go back to that passage in Matthew where Jesus was just talking about the many that will turn away and the slowness and the patience of God's um, timing. It's his kindness that leads us to repentance, not his wrath. I think in conclusion, I feel like the second coming of Christ is a helpful topic in the sense that every one of us as believers should have some thoughts on it. And I I think the the two thoughts that we should all have in common are um, what does it mean to be ready and how how do we um, keep ourselves ready? And then how do we wait eagerly and patiently for this day, um, knowing that many of us might die before the Lord returns? given how kind and patient and long-suffering he is. And yet it's still something that we need to be ready for, like a thief in the night. And as I step back, this is just so brilliant of the Lord that he would create this picture for us to be ready in any moment to be found faithful. And that's the call of our faith. So I... I have to be a good preacher and ask you. I would be a bad preacher if I didn't ask you, are you ready? Are you ready? And, and are you ready? Is your house in order? Are you ready for a thief in the night to come and to expose uh, your faith and your faithfulness? And that's between you and God. There's a, a spiritual reality that we live in, which is Christ in us, and us remaining in him. And this is spiritual. It's also physical in the sense that the only way that we as believers show the love of Christ is through our actions. God is physically using us to show his love. But he one day will physically return in glory. As we close, I I just want to give you a, a little bit on how to think about this in real life and what it means. Um... I feel like it's as literal as Jesus coming is. It's, it's artistic and it's as um, simple as it is. It's mysterious, right? And as beautiful a picture that's created in scripture, it's, it's going to be terrifying. And as physical as it will be, it's spiritual even for us today. 
my wife Libby and I have this band called Over the Rhine, and it's for many years now, it's been one of our favorite bands. And they, um, they carry their faith in a very thoughtful way. And I love how they intertwine their faith into their songwriting. And they become great storytellers. Um, and they, on the, this, their latest album, it's called Meet Me at the Edge of the World. And you may or may not hear it like in between the services today <laughs> on the house music. But, um, but I've really enjoyed the album because on it, there's this phrase that I think is helpful when we think about the boundaries of our faith. And it's a concept that is called Leave the Edges Wild. And so this couple, um, they're a married couple, and, and they moved from the city to this farm. And when they got their farm, one of their dads said, encourage them to leave the edges of the farm wild and see what happens. And then this concept has kind of made its way into their songs with all the birds that they've seen and just different things. Um, But it's a concept that if we think about knowing that Christ will return physically, we have that confidence, knowing that he will return like a thief in the night. How do we live with such an amazing concept in the everyday life? And so to me, leaving the edges wild would be uh, walking along in everyday life and having the freedom to um, see the sky and pause and look up. And we, we all get caught up by the sky and its brilliance at different times and seasons and different times of the day. And, and to allow yourself to pause and take that in. And, and um, allow yourself in that moment to believe that Jesus will physically return on the clouds. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. And then we move on with confidence uh, from that moment in time. And we have this confidence that history is going somewhere. And we don't know what the edges look like. We know that um, the edges are allowed to be wild, but we have this faith uh, in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Frederick Buchner said this quote. He said, this is the world. Beautiful and terrible things will happen. Don't be afraid. Jesus is coming back, so be ready. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we love your word, how dynamic and deep it is, God. And yet by your spirit and your Holy Spirit, you give us inroads on how to understand it and believe it more deeply. Lord, I pray for each one of us, God, personally, that we would be found ready, whether it be death or your return, Lord. And we know, God, that ultimately it is you that protects us. It's your salvation that we put on. It's your breastplate of faithfulness and love that we wear and we live in. God, and I pray that you would call each one of us to holy and godly lives. For those here, Lord, that may be struggling with what it means to believe in you, there's layers of belief and unbelief in their lives. Lord, we offer that up to you humbly, And we ask, God, that you would do a work today in our hearts. 
Give us confidence where we need to have confidence. And give us humility where we need to be humble and humbled. And call us to yourself, Lord. May we not be led astray. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.